And then you hear a very loud child in the back screaming, singing the whole thing. Not like a metal show, but like he is belting it. And it's me. It's me just yelling the song out. Everyone was just laughing. And it's like, I think that says a lot about who I am as a performer. Just look, go all out, floor it, mono red, just do it. My influence, I think, is more that we brought people to the fact that this is the best board game in the world. At the end of it, I'm just glad that more people are able to connect through magic. It's good to have outlets where we can practice how to be social and how to enjoy time with other people and create a positive play group or whatever it is. And that, to me, is like the real takeaway from the whole board game D&D critical role game nights revolution that's happened over the past eight years. Jimmy Wan is a mega talent. He's an actor, performer, songwriter, and mainstay on the Command Zone, one of Magic's biggest YouTube channels. I was fortunate enough to sit down with Jimmy and have a fun conversation about life, magic, parenthood, and everything in between. Enjoy. All right, today on Humans and Magic, I am here with someone who needs almost no introduction. That's not someone, true. someone who is incredibly articulate, well-spoken. makes me nervous wanting to talk to him because he's just got so much, so many thoughts. But uh, I am here with Jimmy Wong. Jimmy, how are you? I'm good. That was a nice intro. You didn't tell me you were going to drop a banger of a compliment. I just thought about doing that five seconds ago. So I'm, I, nice. at least for intros, like I'm pretty, pretty, pretty spontaneous. Uh, but yeah, but you're, how are you? You're, you're, um, are you in LA right now or? Yep. I live in Los Angeles. I just came back though. I was in uh, Tokyo for two weeks. It was amazing. I also dropped down and went to Osaka, but I just got back stateside and then I went to MagicCon Philly and finally all the way back around, I've arrived back at home. So much to unpack there, but, uh, what was your favorite thing about Japan this time around? I assume it's hmm. not your first first rodeo in Japan. It's my second trip, and each time I've taken two weeks there, which I think is the perfect amount of time to experience a country like Japan. I hmm, There's so many things to choose from. I think I enjoyed the people more than anything else this time around. Before, I was like, oh my gosh, Ghibli Museum. Oh my gosh, all my favorite things everywhere around me. Video games, endlessly, magic cards. Uh, but I enjoyed the people this time around because everyone in Japan, there's just a, I mean, this is true in a lot of countries. It's not just Japan, but Japan, I think is particularly uh, got respect as one of its top tier things to exemplify and to demonstrate. And so you don't hear cars honk at each other when you're in Tokyo, even though it's crowded or even if someone doesn't happen to see a red light turn green or whatever. Um, and people like very much enjoy their jobs, it seems, or at least enjoy being a representative in their job and helping do the thing that their job is supposed to be about. So there's a lot of just respect everywhere. And as a result, it's a big difference than America where there's very little respect. <laughs> <laughs> I've had so many people in stores get angry at me for just perusing sometimes. Now, obviously this is not the case everywhere. That would be crazy. Um, but I think America, you know, we're very much a, a me country. And so you don't see that people usually hate their jobs. They don't love it or they don't have, this is my job. This is a duty and I will fulfill it to the best of my ability. Mm -hmm. Like that idea I think is not as present in American culture. Yeah. I mean, the few times I've been to Japan, even going to a Seven Eleven, even just oh, yeah. getting something on the street, there's just this sort of care and craft that goes into every part of that society. And. I want to say that 
people are kind of forced into it because like you know if you grow up if, you, if you're a japanese <laughs> oh, yeah. and you grow up into it you're you're, you're kind of forced into it, right because like, you can't just kind of have crappy standards and then your your business is not going to be around the next day but true th- whatever the reasons for it are um there's something we could learn from that right it's like it's almost like there's a there's a spectrum of like pure professionalism maybe japanese way and yeah. i don't give a fuck about like my job at all and i'm just i'm just i can't wait person to at mcdonald's today. making six dollars an hour and having to pay three thousand dollars for rent yeah i get why they're angry <laughs> yeah yeah there's a there's a bit of that but uh um yeah i always feel like there's something we can learn from japanese society um but i mean having said that like what do you think are the are there things that you don't particularly enjoy about being in japan like i don't know it's, oh yeah you've only I... been a tourist for two two weeks but yeah, yeah. And I love how I've just gone from adoring people in Japan to now I'm just going to start pooping on them. No, well, you I think, have ups and downs. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's true. I mean, if you travel a lot everywhere, it's just ups and downs. And then at the end of it, you kind of weigh all of them together because it takes a while to unpack mentally what happened. And you go like, hmm, because you have to like compare time to like time here versus time there. I think um, the other big thing in Japan is shame. And so that is a reason also that drives respect. And I'm not saying this is like a thing I didn't enjoy about Japan. I I, ha- I have gone to Asian countries enough to, I think, to like get a pretty good idea of the major ones. I haven't traveled to like Vietnam or Thailand or any of those yet. Um, or I really want to go to the Philippines too, because I think they all have their different flavor of what their culture is about. Shame is present in all of them, by the way, as, as it also is in American culture. It's everywhere. But I think in Japan, it takes a particular like, I don't know, it's... It's like a it's like a very sharp knife in a lot of ways. It cuts deep and it's also beautiful because it's a really beautiful knife. So there's like this interesting I don't know how to describe it otherwise, right? Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. like if you think about Japanese food, all of it is this wonderful like sushi is just like a perfect handmade thing that's crafted top to bottom. You know, it's got absolute certainty in it. Um and the way that they do a lot of their tech design and a lot of their engineering follows a lot of that same idea. Um, but shame is really present there also in different ways because of the ways that there's a lot of censorship in different ways. Um, there's also just a lot of like, no, you don't talk about that or you don't do that and you don't do it like that because other people will look at you and they won't outright say like, Hey, don't do that. But you'll feel like you're being doing something shameful or wrong or disrespectful. So there's an energy there too, that has that. And that obviously is something you find in other places, but Japan again, particular flavor is kind of like that. Yeah. I was interviewing this Japanese professional basketball player at, who grew up in Hawaii, kind of like kind of like uh Josh and he was just talking about how hard it was to to live in Japan because oh, interesting. um because well, he's 6 foot 9 as well, so he said, <laughs> you know, I wouldn't expect it, but I mean, I'm not that tall and and but you know, just getting stares and just I I think a, a grandma, you know, gave him the the stink eye because he was a little bit too loud on the subway so there's a oh, lot of for sure yeah a lot of the a lot of those norms right because like the, the japanese public transit is just immaculate like um but it's but great it has its downsides too like you can't you can't actually answer calls right because like you'll disturb the person next to you so yeah. yeah it's interesting and that's probably why my wife noted that it's like japan also has a very strict immigration you know it's not easy to become a citizen there and it's equal parts them saying like no you do not meet the qualifications to live here in a respectful way that will allow you to coalesce with society and function with our society. (laughs) And just like, you know, they don't want to bring in new people, even though their, you know, their population is going down and stuff. But I think they're still holding on to that cultural part of it, which makes sense. I I think like, 
once you do let the doors wide open, there's a, you see all the results and all around the world, you have tons of case studies in every part of the world, what happens when immigration is totally allowed and immigration is strictly limited. For sure. And do you have any idea what Japanese internet is like? I, I mean, in terms of like the communities, cause I know you, you've been very, oh, no, um, that's yeah, not very much. <laughs> I'm curious how shame and the societal construct works in the context of that. Like the people just don't, people just not argue online. Like I have no idea, you know, yeah. I'm just curious if you do. You do see, if you go on like Twitter, when you're in Japan, you'll get just a bunch of characters that I can't read and it's something's mm -hmm. trending and you click it. And I just, I, I don't understand any part of it, but I would assume that there is some amount of relation as social media is definitely, you know, we see how it's shown the humanity of all of us pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah, definitely something I want to talk about more <laughs> with you, but, uh, how was, uh, yeah. how was PT? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So there's a pro tour in Philly as well as a magic con. They happen at the same time. Um, pretty, I think it's pretty savvy, uh, marketing wise to, to pair them up. Cause I think the pro tour, everyone agreed was just an absolute win and seeing someone like Reed Duke take it home too, was like, hell yeah, that guy deserves it <laughs> probably about more than anyone else. That's a current competitor, to be honest. Um, and then at Magicom was great too. So Philly was just awesome. We loved the convention. I thought the convention was the best magic convention I've ever been to. Um, and it was, I, I think they're still trying to improve it a lot. They get so much feedback and they took the stuff that they heard from Magicon Vegas pretty to heart. Um, and they're working also in partnership with a pretty large, uh, convention organizer with Repop. So I've, I've been to a lot of Repop conventions before, like Penny Arcade Expo. I used to go to the one in Seattle every year. Uh, that was always run by Repop and they do a really good job running big shows. I think they'd never done a magic show like that before. And so they were also figuring out. You know, what resources do we need to give? How exactly do we need to accommodate in terms of the size of the arenas and, you know, where it all is located? Um, so I think they learned a lot. And the, the con as a result was a lot better. Um, and you could tell Wizards was like, we need to have more open play areas and not have anything like that happen to us on social media, probably. That's my gauge, gauge of it. Um, but there was still like a paid command zone area and stuff. And I think that was the number one piece of feedback overall was like, we don't need a paid command zone area. It's completely against the idea, but they'll probably keep doing it knowing, you know, how things yeah, work. What's the sentiment? Are they going to, it feels like they probably would not abolish it, but maybe just offer different options over time. Right? I think, yeah, if you're going to do it, then have it be like, we have judges on hand for high level CEDH games. We have, uh, the ability to play if you want to for like some fun kind of everyone adds a booster pack to their deck or like in this version variant we're going to give you the plane chase cards to play with you know like stuff like that and all the tokens that you'll need you know stuff like that would make the experience actually feel like a curated magic one as opposed to where i think it was originally conceived of as like there's a lot of tables here people will be drafting and doing all this stuff and we need to set aside an area for the commander players but it quickly just became a monetized thing. And then that I think took precedent over like, why is it a commander area? Cause people will just sit anywhere and play commander until they're told to leave. Yeah. Uh, give me one second. I'm going to shut the door. So my uh, cat will not continue to disturb us. I want to see the cat. Oh yeah. My apologies. The, so uh, you live in Shanghai and have a cat as well. I got two cats. Um, wow. There. Who takes yeah. care of them when you travel? Uh, okay. Funny story. So when I was, uh, when we met in LA, uh, so mm -hmm. I, I did North America, the cats came with us. Oh, um, wow. We, that was a whole, 
that was an epic undertaking, to be honest. Like, just uh, my wife really wanted our cats to come because we were going to be out of China for a month. And it was just like, yeah, let's just do all the paperwork, get all the shots, go through all the rigmarole. And so right now, I guess now our cats have gone to three countries. So, wow. um, yeah, that's that that's something that I would never, ever want to ever do again. Um, <laughs> I, I don't have kids, but I imagine this is probably what that feels like, except that with cats, it's probably arguably worse because they're right. animals and you have to take them across borders and stuff like that. Yeah. Animals have their whole, they have a whole line of, of regulatory, whatever I'm sure to make sure that you're not bringing in some rat that's going to take over the population of rats in America or something. <laughs> yes. And the really funny thing is that, uh, China has been very strict about like bringing animals into the country. So we were just stressing about like doing oh, bringing the them work, like, yeah. and bring them back. It was actually easy to get them into Canada, into the U S but coming back was the challenging part. Um, we paid out the nose for these exams and tests and like papers. But funny thing is when we landed back in China, like nobody even batted an eye. We just like, we just, yeah. we just took them right outside the airport and, uh, you know, don't ask, don't tell kind of thing. So. Yeah, sounds about right. Also, just I guess it just depends on who's working that day. Exactly, exactly. That's um, how it goes. Yeah, not to make it too much about it, but like we also came back in in February, which was uh, a oh, time right. when things were relaxed a lot more COVID wise in China. So for the first um, time, I think in people like just three years or whatever. Yeah, I think I think people just wanted to. Um, the authorities just wanted to take a break, maybe. So we were lucky. Nice, yeah. nice. Well, next time you travel with your cats, just time it around that again. Yes, yes. Um, <laughs> it was insane. Uh, we had I hadn't personally been outside of mainland China for three years. So when I met you in in uh, oh wow uh, in LA, and also when I went back home to Vancouver, Canada, where I'm from, like I had not been back to those places since uh, pre-COVID. So it was really, really freaking nice, right? In nice, to yeah, just, yeah. Like. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of good times out there. Well, I'm glad you were able to stop by our office and, and say hi then. That was a lot of fun. Yes, um, it was a lot of fun. And uh, did you manage to get all your taxes uh, done? My taxes? What, man? I remember oh, we were up. chatting and oh, you were also right. working on your taxes at the time on your laptop. Yeah, that's Sorry, actually... Sorry, that's like too private. I should no, it's a nonstop thing is the problem with taxes because there's always something that has to get done. Um, and then there's always another pile of data that you realize no one's been accounting for and someone needs to mark down what was what and why it happened. Because um, uh, taxes... I, yeah, I've, I've done a lot of looking at tax forms recently as well because of withholding, which is like a whole... I don't know if you know what withholding is and dependents and all that stuff. But... The government gives me a whole $2,000 every year for having a baby. 2000 bucks. Bless really? their hearts. Yeah. Uh, so you're marking now, now whenever I, this is I like a state a, of California thing or it's, no, it's a, it's a U.S. thing. I think it came into play a, a little while back and it's just been like a, a policy sense in the idea that being like, we need to support families as they're, you know, raising a child have, it's yeah. difficult, you know, um, it's actually kind of nice. I wish it was more, but it would make sense why it's also <laughs> at $2,000 considering how big the country is. Um, yeah. so that requires a whole new thing of me writing down, like how much do I get, you know, cause you mark now a dependent on your tax forms and stuff. Cause your child is your dependent. 
Um, and then we, you know, we also have like five different options now that I'm married. There's like married filed jointly, married filed separately, head of household. There's a billion things. So yeah, I'm still doing my taxes. If that's your question, it's never yeah, it's ending. A, it's a it's a nonstop thing. Also, it's probably more challenging because you're a freelancer, right? Like you do things not for anymore. Uh, we've moved into the W two, I think, or W four, one of them, life where you just get a, you know, the taxes are prepaid. California is real rough to freelancers. There is a literal self-employment tax on top of everything else that you do. Okay. Yeah. The more you know. Like, I had a great time in California, but I was telling my wife, who's not from, also not from California, like, there's a lot of issues with um, the, yeah. the, the state. Like, so it's very different visiting versus living, as oh, it totally. always is, right? Kind of like yeah. we talked about with Japan. And, I, uh, I usually tell people that California is like quickly becoming a socialist nightmare, which is like when the good times roll on a little too hard and then people realize, oh, we're paying a lot to keep the good times rolling and it's not actually working because <laughs> every major city and no one's going to deny this at this point in California post-COVID is just like not in great shape for many different reasons. Here in LA, we saw like homeless people and they were just getting literally just torn out of their housing and because the Oscars had to take place in Union Station. It was just like, just ridiculous. I'm from oh, Seattle. It's gotten real bad in parts of downtown there too. It's just like one of those things that happens, I think, to show the, you know, COVID, what did COVID do? It cracked the veneer on the whole world and went like, where are the weak points? And then all the weak points started to shine through once everything paused. So mm -hmm. I think you got to see every country have to deal with whatever their thing. I mean, America's dealt with a lot, I think, since. Yeah. So correct me if I'm wrong. You're from Washington, but you moved to LA or California yeah. basically for professional reasons. Is that right? Yeah. My brother went to USC and I wanted to be an actor. So I came to LA to where he was at because he already had a network here and all that stuff. And I was like, oh, this is convenient. Uh, but I grew up in Seattle. So pretty close to where you grew up. Yeah. Yeah. So were it not for command zone, let's say that you can, you were like hundred percent focused on being an actor or being Hollywood or doing something to that effect. Like, do you feel like now, like in 2023, people still have to be in LA or be in California? Mm, it's tough for us because we do a podcast where showing up on camera is important. It means yeah. I need to be there for that part of it, but I don't know. I personally always tell people to not become actors. It's like my go-to whenever I hear anyone is thinking about the career. Um, I feel like you can pretty much make work from home work as long as you are like very diligent about how you handle it. Like you have a process, you are administrative in your approach to work from home. It's not just, I'm a work from home and do whatever I want, go wherever I want. <laughs> Cause I was trying to work from home when I was in Japan. And so that meant I had to wake up at 6 AM, uh, to get, be awake by 1 PM LA time. And so my working hours, I told people here was like one to nine, like in between those hours, I will respond to things, field things and manage things, um, as necessary. But that morning period, you had, you can't count me out. Yeah. Yeah. How did that work out for you? Like, did it wreck you or are you okay with it? It was hard. I stopped kind of doing it like halfway through the trip because I got too, it was just like that plus jet lag was just a little too hard to maintain. Um, and then I got full into Japan time and then I was more like a three to midnight kind of person. Um, but then I got, I was trying to go back to it on the way back home because I knew I'd have to readjust to another time zone. So try to just like reverse the process. It's tough. Jet lag is harder on different people than so others. And for me, it was, it took like a week, I think to fully get settled in because I was also doing this work from home thing. Yeah. I guess my question is more about like, if you're, 
if you're an actor, maybe my my stereotypical view of that industry is like you have to network, you have to like oh, be in places, right? So um, yeah, no, no, I, I totally appreciate the answer in terms of like with respect to what you have now set up, like in terms of command zone things like that. Um, but just as an actor, like do you have to be in LA, or is that is that changing too? I hope. I hope it can eventually change, but no, the networking thing is really important. And it like, it's always way, it always happens in moments that you don't think about that are more impactful than you might realize. Like it could be the, I was just out at a bar. Let's just say you're at a bar and you meet your friend Ron there. And Ron is someone that you've worked with in the past, or, you know, you just know, and it just so happens that he mentioned something that he's working on or some project that's ongoing or some friend he's meeting that night, you meet that person. And then, you know, cut to a year later. But the effects from having those initial interactions result in you doing more and growing the tree of your relationship and finding other people within that network. And then eventually you get to a point where, hey, I'm just hanging out with this person. And or I'm it was like Ron's, let's say his ex business partner is also doing something that you haven't imagined. And now you guys are just buddy, buddy, and you're having a blast together and, you know, and you're eventually folding Ron back into the mix. So that's just kind of like how the scrum goes down. Um, and you need to be in L.A. because it's just where things are happening. Um, now, I don't think you need to live in LA proper. You could probably still live like, you know, 30 minutes to an hour away. Um, but as long as you know how to stay in touch and make sure you go to that friend's birthday and grow your social network, however, which way, then it seems like it's still pretty important. It's hard to avoid that. And you can't do that digitally. Are, does that just mean every every actor or someone in the industry has to be like relatively social? Like you really can't be antisocial because you, you wouldn't be able to hang out with people or can you still kind of do it your own in different ways? You probably still could, but then it just comes down to the quality of your auditions and how you're getting your auditions. Because it's just about, are you going to be seen by the right people at the right time? Because when you're networking, you're making that part of the equation happen. You're trying to go out and find and meet people that are also aspiring maybe for a similar thing. And then you're going to help piggyback on each other's aspirations to get to the point that you want to. And if you're just like, I'm going to study and become the greatest, you're still probably going to get help from your acting coach. Maybe they'll help you out with an audition somewhere or help you connect to one. Um, your agent has to do a lot of work. Especially if you're just like, if you are genuinely it, you're like Joaquin Phoenix or whatever, and you're just waiting to be discovered, it is only a matter of time, but it's like, is it going to be five years or two years based on how you handle yourself and move through the industry? Because um, I think like those types of talents are always looking to be found. And that's the nature of the beast with music as well. Um, and most other people are grinding for like a... It's like in ranked games, you know, how you get to platinum, it starts to get 10% of the players. You go to like diamond, it gets to like 5%. You go to grandmaster or like the the about to go pro level or the A-listers basically. And it's like 0.1% or whatever the player base. I think if you're an actor, you're really just trying to play for the top 10%. And that will mm -hmm. be enough to like sustain a career. Mm -hmm. So you know, it's tough. I mean, if you think you want to play for that game, then go for it. If you don't, then I don't know, write something instead. <laughs> I don't know. Do something where you're in control because acting a lot of times you're just not in control. For sure. And how did you get the Mulan role? Like, um, just blind sheer luck, I think. The <laughs> really? Uh, no, I, I'd imagine right you were place, like right networking time, with some some person important for like five years and or something. I think it was because I just had it was a very large casting call. Like if you were any amount of known Asian in Hollywood, you were probably going to find a way to hear about it. 
And then it's up to whether or not the casting office sees your picture and resume and goes, yeah, let's bring them in. So at that point, it's more that I'd been building a career and across a bunch of different things. I had some notable credits. I wasn't a nobody. I'd done stuff with Disney before. Um, and I think like, you know, maybe they knew me from the internet. Who knows? There's a lot of different vectors of how someone gauges whether to call you in. Um, and so that was the result of, again, being here for the last decade and just kind of pushing forward and finding those opportunities as they came up. So you still had to audition, still had to go through the regular uh, audition. The... Yeah. It was like, I, I remember walking into the room and I had the, the moment where I was like, oh my God, they're all versions of me. Or I'm all I'm a version of them. You see the other people walking <laughs> in now. You're like, oh my gosh, <laughs> yeah. Well, or they were going like Leroy one, Leroy two, you know, whatever. Um, and then, uh, yeah, one audition. I got a callback like a month or two later. I went back. I did the callback, and at that point, it was the actual director and the executive producer were there, Jason Reed and Nikki Carroll. And then you did it for them. They gave you a note. You did it again, and then you walk away, and you're like, "Well, hope they liked it." That was all of two minutes of my life that I've been, you know, thinking about for the past four months or whatever. Yeah. Did you still? I mean, I I don't know, like where you're at right now. Like, do you still get, still get nervous about opportunities or auditions, or you just kind of go in and and just just knock it out? Yeah, I find that being nervous doesn't give me much of any help. Especially if it's like no edge, right? nervous where I can't yeah. do anything, I'm frozen. Um, I do still get like, like hyped up and stuff and my heart's definitely racing and like a billion things are flying across my brain when I get to the actual thing. Still happens with like live events that I do and stuff too. Cause we did magic, we did um, game nights live at Magicon Philly. And so that was also like a, oh man, I'm not stressed or anxious, but I am, there's a lot of adrenaline pumping through me. I feel like, uh, you know, guys like you and Josh have such a, uh, an awesome unfair advantage, right? Cause like coming <laughs> from a performance background and actually knowing, know how to turn things on and off. Like, I don't mean that in any negative way, like just being able to turn things on like that is just so you're just so natural, like in, in front of a microphone <laughs> or in front of a camera. And it's just like, yeah. you know, it's just. It's just unreal. Like it, it, it takes, it takes years and years, right? It's not just like someone like me, like Joe Schmo, who does a podcast, like it just figure it out, you know? Yeah. But you ask good questions. So there's a lot of value in that too. Cause it's like a, a mental arena you're approaching a person from, I think like, if you go back to looking at, I have these like really old videos of my parents filmed when I was in kindergarten or something, we all were dressed as dinosaurs and we were just singing some sort of like song as a group. And Everyone singing like a kid would sing, you know, they kind of got their like yeah, da, da, voices They're not, you know, they're not belting it. And then you hear a very loud child in the back screaming, singing the whole thing, not like a metal show, but like he is, he's, he's like belting it. He's Adele. And it's me. It's me just yelling the song out louder, like with no alertness to how I come off or what everyone in the crowd is also just laughing because it's very funny. Um, and to me, I, I remember like being like, like, this is the song. I just got to sing it and make sure everyone can hear the notes. <laughs> everyone was just laughing. And it's like, I think that says a lot about who I am as a performer, which is just like, that is just you know, go all out, floor it, mono red, just do it. Were you always super performative as a, as a child? Like, was it like, how, how was that? Cause I know, I know you have a, you have a brother, Freddie, right? Yeah, and, we're both uh, pretty performative, I think. Yeah, I don't know where what was, it, came what was from. it like growing up together, like in in, in Washington? <laughs> like, just just you know, what was that like? 
pretty goofy probably we would like when we were kids we would take pool sticks and fight each other and then freddy would go and rotoscope like tibbers onto it so we would like make home movies when we were kids um and we, he and I were really close in age. We were only like a year and a half apart. So we would always play video games together. We would hang out together. We'd always be in arguments and then instantly make up. Uh, so that was like very much like a close sibling relationship. And he and I also both went to the same high school and middle school. So we were in school together for like eight years. Um, so I think like we were always very close growing up. And then he loved doing videos and kept making movies and stuff in the, into high school and stuff. And I was always there and occasionally jump in and helping occasionally just living my own life. Um, so I think like having someone else that was always doing stuff in that world also allowed me to continue to explore my own version of it. Yeah. What about your folks? I mean, were they, did they have anything like a performance background or anything like that? Like how did they influence you? If any? I think my dad had like played the accordion when he was growing up. My mom is very musical and she can dance. Um, and she was a professional dancer in her early life. So there was definitely an artistic streak that we both inherited, but I don't know about the performance side of it as much. Maybe I'm closer to my mom because my dad kind of tends to keep it in. Um, mm -hmm. whereas my mom is a bit more boisterous. Got it. Got it. And you, you've learned, like you learned to play instruments or play music like super young. I would expect right yeah we did the piano thing that was our um our i guess our quest yeah. as characters in the rpg so <laughs> we played a lot of piano and there was a point where it was like maybe this could be a professional career piano and very quickly it was like no 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 we just went to a concert and three kids just smoked everyone else and we're you know <laughs> we're not at the top 0.1 percent basically we were trying but to get to top 10 percent was the idea i think but you were very good, right? Further. You were you were top ten percent or close to that. I would assume so. The stuff I watched the video again of me as a kid, and I'm like mouth to the chin to the floor, like oh my gosh, look at the look at that kid go, and it's me. <laughs> yeah, I've lost a lot of that, but I do still love music, so I'm very very musical still. I know a lot of people learned to play music when they're younger. I'm just thinking of Asian friends of mine, but they just kind of stopped it entirely like is it just because it was too much or was it like mm. was it like going to like catholic school and just like you don't want to have anything to do with it anymore like like yeah what's the maybe deal with that. that also like not everyone is naturally musical or should be in music i think it looked out for us because both freddie and i really like music and so there was genuine joy and happiness when playing um i could also like because music's kind of a rough if you think about what's happening, you're making someone play the works of a dead person and you're not <laughs> trying to put your own expression into it. You're trying to be as good. You'll Actually, the premise is that you will never be as good as them right. and the right. masters, but you're right. trying to become as good. And so you're, you already see like there's not like, what do you want to do? You know, the very kind of that kind of passion building. It's just like there is a rigid program here. And this is what you're aspiring to. And this is what you're going to try and work hard for every single day. So imagine not being musical and being subjected to one to two hours of that every single day of your life probably would cause some people to just not care about music or just to drop it and never need to approach it again. I've, that is so interesting. I never thought about that. Like just, I did all the time as I was playing Mozart, I was like this is what they did first. It, it just pops into your head one day, like when you were a kid, it's just like, I can never top this. 
Well, I would I'd listen to a lot of like Nirvana and Modest Mouse and others, you know, Washington right. State bands, and that music was my I love that stuff, grunge, rock, just like you know, Pearl Jam or whatever, Red yeah. Chili Peppers. Uh, so I think that I I could see how cool that was and how that got girls and stuff. And I was not like mad balling to school and everyone's like, dang, look at Jimmy. He's so good at Chopin. Holy shit. Like that was never (laughs) anything I bragged about to anyone because it was such a niche thing to me. Like no, very few people could appreciate what we were doing at that level unless you had been studying it or, you know, loved piano yourself. When it comes to music, like, you know, Nirvana or others you mentioned, um, there's a kind of messiness to it, right? Which kind of suggests that it is anti-perfection. Um, so when you were immersed in that music or maybe learning to play guitar as well at some point, like, um, did that feel like you could, it's so weird to ask this, but like, do you feel like that's better because you could, you could surpass it somehow? Cause it's not about like being a Mozart or, or a Beethoven, you know? Yeah. I mean, I guess anyone that wants to be a professional musician treats it like they're trying to become Mozart or Beethoven or whatever, or they, they aspire for something that's similar. It's like, like when you're an actor, you're like, maybe I could be a Brad Pitt someday. Um, I don't know. I think like music is very difficult to process as a thing for me sometimes, because when I play songs on the guitar, I'm like really bad at memorizing lyrics. I will fumble through songs. I've done live shows where I just mess up like a billion times. Um, and that was the exact thing you're not supposed to do when you're playing classical piano it had to be, you know, a hundred percent getting the S plus was the goal. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, you would entertain people still on stage in the, in a, in a show, you would be doing things with the audience. You'd be whatever it is, right. There's a whole layer of live performance that makes it the performance outside of just the music. Um, so I think like when it came to playing music and it is very messy, like Nirvana and all those, the idea of grunge rock and distorting your guitar so much. Um, I think like I enjoyed that expression. It was just like free. It was so cool. You could, you know, headbang to no one didn't care if anyone was watching kind of thing, but there's a lot, a lot of buttoned up stress with piano. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Things are starting to fall into place in, in my mind. So, uh, <laughs> very much a leading question, but like how much of video game high school was informed by your actual high school experience? Oh, so that's interesting because people should know this. I guess it was put out there for a little bit, but when they went to write the characters of my brother's character, who was a teacher at a high school, and then my character who was one of the students, um, the writers had lived with me and Freddie. We both lived together in LA for like two years at that point. Uh... And they were like, we're just going to base this relationship loosely, comedically off of your real life relationship to Freddie. Um, and so oh, that's okay. so why the premise is that it is an exaggerated version of, yeah, it's of a you. highly exaggerated version where they take it to the absolute limits, you know, of how shitty can a dad be to their kid. Um, and Freddie was a great brother to me. So it's like, we just have a very antagonistic back and forth, uh, rivalry in a lot of ways. People that listen to his newest podcast, I was a guest on their first season and second season. And the entire vibe is just how funny it is that we're just both just pooping on each other the whole time. Mm. Um, so that was like where that came from. And then the high school experience, I think was like a combination of everyone's high school experiences. And the, I, I mean, like my character in VGHS is much more successful with the ladies than my real life self ever was. So I think that was the biggest deviation by far. Okay. Got it. And do you still regularly play music today? Like maybe at home or just in, in certain settings? I have a guitar I'm looking at that's sitting there. I haven't picked it up in like a month. So no, probably longer than that. 
um, yeah. I do always end up singing at my kid though. Like I'm beatboxing or just coming up with a song or singing whatever song is on TV. Um, like all the kids songs, they're constantly stuck in my head. So I think that's my musical outlet right now. It's not really Got much it. of an outlet. Got it. Um, fatherhood. What's that? What, what has that journey been like? Like, I don't know. How old is your kid now? I, 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 are you allowed to say? I have no idea. Yeah, I'm definitely allowed to say. <laughs> I have to ask him permission first, but I think. I mean, okay. I don't know. You, some, some people are, I, I, cause, cause you're, you're very thoughtful and intentional about, um, you know, online and like information oh, yeah. online and things. I so I wanted to be sure. Yeah. I think if it's Googleable, then you're okay saying it. Um, so he just turned a year old. So he's like a year and a month now. So about to start walking pretty cool. Um, I also don't care so much cause like, it's not like the wrong people are going to watch this podcast, I guess, unless you got <laughs> some weirdos in the audience. No, you, you, you're totally, you're totally right. <laughs> like my, my theory is that if you, if you're actually like 40 minutes into a podcast, like pretty much anything can happen now. Cause like, cause yeah. the people that are just like hate listening or like, uh, like on the sidelines, they will never make it past the first 15 minutes. Yeah. They have their own lives to live. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, so yeah, we can just the, start, I, I can just start crazy, crazy after like an hour or something, but, uh, but yeah, I, I'm not going to, I should that. go back and watch the one you did with Josh to see how crazy it gets 40 minutes in. Oh no, Josh was immaculate. Like I, I, I couldn't disrespect Josh like that. I couldn't, I couldn't do anything <laughs> crazy on the camera, but uh, yeah. Um, but anyways, that was a, Big, I love sorry, Josh. I love huge... poking fun at him too. Um, okay. Yeah. We're talking about childhood. Uh, not mine, my babies. Yeah. It's been going good. It's definitely, it changes a man. Uh, it changes a human. It changes anyone that has to deal with having a kid. It's crazy out there. I'm so new to having a kid that my experiences sound like a kid eating ice cream for the first time. It's so beautiful. It's so good. Oh my gosh. It's like, be so grateful. Um, but it really is all the things that people stereotype it to be and way more like you, you really don't, I, I, I feel like I'm dipping my toe so far into what it means to be a father. And there's a long way to go before I'm even up to like my, my waist, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, everyone says it's, uh, uh, there's just so much to learn. Right. But I, I just wonder if. Is it, is it true? The cliche, like you just change as a person, like just, just mm. you, Jimmy, maybe, I mean, maybe not. if you don't change, maybe there's something wrong with you. That could be it too. Yeah. Cause like, there's a lot of pride before the fall in general. Um, mm. and having a kid is probably a, a humbling experience is one of the top things it is. It's just like a very much, you cannot deny reality in front of you. Sometimes, you know, when you. One time I remember I was like holding the kid and just yelling, stop <laughs> in like a really not cool way. And I was, I had to like sit there and just be like, wow, I must look like a total idiot trying to tell a infant, a newborn to stop doing something like they could even understand why I was asking or what I wanted from them. And, and like me trying to control them too, it was like crazy. So there's always a bunch of those moments too, like changing diapers too. Like when you get peed on for the first time, you don't feel great about mm. yourself, but you're not going to get angry at the kid for it. That would be completely antithetical to what is actually happening. And so you constantly are entering those scenarios. Um, and you're being humbled by the fact that you don't, your life is no longer your own. How do you deal with that? It's not, you know, do you treat it as a loss or, or is it actually something you gained? I think a lot of like tiny decisions 
that you make with childhood can definitely compound over time. And so it's really important to just have having a supportive partner is really important, probably more than anything else, because it's a team job. Um, and then also seeing other people with kids has completely changed for me. Every time I see a baby in public, I'm like, oh my God, look, it's a baby. And then you look <laughs> at the parents and you're like, oh my gosh, you're doing it. Like we're doing it. Yeah. Or you meet someone that has like a 10 year old and you're like, oh wow, look at, look at that one. Look at what happened. Whoa. Maybe. Oh, interesting. You know, like just a thousand new questions too. And, and things it's like when you, I don't know, when you see someone else's cat, you probably have a similar thing oh, right two thousand percent like i actually pay attention to other cats now like uh yeah i mean i'm not trying to equate it to to taking care of a human being but it's it's, uh, a, it's they call them starter childs for reasons dogs and cats you know yeah absolutely i mean we love our we love our cats and i would die for my cats so i can only imagine what it's like to have a, a oh, human yeah. version of that you know? <laughs> the things i would die for in my life my child is number one on that list so yeah and it's yeah. not even like something you even think about like i don't spend any time thinking about would i take a bullet for my baby it's mm -hmm. just like in your everyday action you just have you just to do it if you it just have to help yeah there's nothing you would do in that moment that that your life is somehow now more precious than theirs or whatever and that's something too that was like a stereotype but like you want your child to surpass you i feel that a hundred percent and i never knew what that feeling was until you saw this and you're like oh i'm gonna be i'm gonna be dead at some point and this thing mm. ideally is still alive and then they're gonna have a kid that is also still alive when they're gone and it's like ah this you know you're starting to you're, you're melting into the matrix of how humanity works you're like oh my gosh this is it <laughs> this is the process yeah as you're saying that i i kind of i kind of just wanted to share a little bit like i've come like i've I've gone back and forth on this a lot but i i mm -hmm. somehow now even despite not having kids of my own i'm sort of coming around to the fact that really the only meaning of life is to just have pass on your, your dna in the next generation because like, I, I i've gone through so many phases of you know what is the meaning like yeah, why yeah. am i here and life and death blah 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 like woe is me or happy is me but maybe that's really it right maybe that's all there all there is to it you know i mean life is like one long blink where you open your eyes and then you close it and you're dead and then, you know, depending on what you believe in, maybe a version of that opens its eyes once again to experience life in another facet. And so I think having children is genetically and all, just like as a species is what we are designed to do. It's what every species on the planet is literally designed to do. So you could equate it to meaning of life, but meaning of life is so much, it's such a huge bucket of thing um, yeah. that maybe you can't fully just go like have kids. Maybe that's a purpose of life, but the meaning is what we carry along with it, I guess. Cause I think a lot of people that don't have kids are contributing greatly to the world in that they are creating a world that's hopefully better and more, um, less chaotic and more, you know, unified over time through their actions. And even though they may not have kids, maybe they will still exist again in the future as another part and thread of fabric of society. Cause you know, you have parents and brothers and siblings and family that also are carrying yourself forward into the abyss of time and whatever infinity mm -hmm. so i don't know meaning of life is, a, is always a tough one because i thought when i was a kid my meaning of life was to be a better dad than my dad was you know like it was very like angsty mm, teen status yeah. yeah yeah and then when you actually have kids you're like no meaning of life is definitely to make them the greatest they can be so that they can have a great time and keep doing great things and i don't care about me anymore it's about them you know it's like so i think like 
I always had the intuition as a as myself to like want to push forward with something into father or whatever. But I think a lot of people also do that with their work, you know, uh, like, like, I don't think Josh is planning on having kids because he has so many kids around him already, including everyone that works at command zone. So in a way we are his family and his legacy and, you know, his, through his work and what he wants to do through that. I think you see a lot of that across the world, not just in this scenario, but every country has versions of this. Oh, no doubt. No also, doubt. not everyone can have a kid. That's like another big, big thing. Tons of people are stopped from having kids for any number of reasons. It's tough because having a kid is also just such a financial investment, time, emotional, mental, everything goes into it. So that is also something that I understand why people just don't want to give their own lives up for that. But having said that, it's all worth it, at least from your perspective, right? I mean, yeah. Otherwise, I would be sad. I think, and if I, if, if it gets hard, I have to keep telling myself that too, cause yeah. you know, it's nice. The kids are cool. They're really cute. You film them all the time and you're like, Oh, look at <laughs> what they did. Look at that. That's so cool. Oh my gosh. What they did this time. Oh, they did this for the first time. Yeah. So I'm in that phase still for sure. That that's kind of how I feel why I want to have kids. Cause like after we have cats, it's kind of like, I really want cats that I could talk to. I really want cats that can grow up one day and appreciate all the freaking things I've done for them, like taking them across <laughs> borders and, you know, pay out the wazoo for them. Yeah. The cat like, is not like going to be like, kids, thanks like, dad. <laughs> at least with kids, there's a shot that one day they would get it. You know, like Jimmy, like did all this stuff. My dad did all this stuff for me. Uh, and that is coming from a very selfish place. I understand, but like, <laughs> I, I just, I just can't not admit that, you know? I mean, it's a very human thing to get validation for your actions. So. <laughs> Kids, I think like too, I also want to have someone that can like ask me a question that makes me go, I have no idea. Cause that to me is, is there's a whole world of, of knowledge that you can potentially learn by talking to them too. I don't know what that's like yet. And there, I'm sure there's going to be phases when they tell me whatever dad, and I hate everything about it, but I'm sure the, or I hope the good times <laughs> are enough to carry us through the rest of our lives. You have to really step up your knowledge game. I think once your kid starts, your kid starts asking you stuff, right? Because you can't just, you can't just dismiss it all. So you or get like, good at lying. It, I don't know. Uh, maybe, I, I don't know. I don't, I'm not taking you for that kind of type, but it's like, you know, if they ask you for, you know, why is the, why is the earth round? Like you gotta, you gotta, you gotta come prepared or you gotta be able to Google at your fingertips. That's going to be a challenge, right? Yeah, I guess. <clears throat> I also think it's like, you also have to protect their innocence. I, I had one person that was a dad tell me that his son told him like, dad, I know too much too soon. Like he was what? like, uh, like, so I mean, maybe, maybe the kid is very self-aware, but it was also the dad was like, maybe I also kind of like brought him down this path for a long time of like, here's how this actually works. You want to know the truth about Santa, you know, like <laughs> that sort of stuff. All um, the spoiler alerts right here. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I don't, I think like there's that element too of like, where, how do you bridge that and make sure that you don't tell them everything that in some information I wish I didn't need to know at certain points in my life, you know, there's, there's definitely things that I thought maybe could have been broached better. So maybe that's the difficult part is like, how do you approach the tough questions in a way that leads to good times? Yeah. Do you ever, maybe this is just life, but it's like, you know, sometimes we, 
we go through life thinking like, I don't want to be like my dad. Uh, so I've definitely thought about that in the past. And then mm. you kind of grow up and you realize that, Hey, I, one day, like I am my dad. Like, oh, is, yeah. that a, is that, is that magnified now that you're a parent or not yeah, to I'm, make light of it? But... I'm 50% my dad, 50% my mom. And so is every single person living on planet Earth, <laughs> yeah, um, which I think is just fascinating to think about. Um, and so uh, people always like, oh, Mason, your baby looks just like you, Jimmy. I'm like, no, I think he looks just like my wife. And it's a constant like back and forth of not actually knowing, um, which I think is really funny. Actually, he just woke up from a nap. So I'm going to go grab him really fast. Sure. And yeah. deliver him to my wife. <laughs> is everything okay with Mason? Yeah, uh, they're all I, jet lagged because they came back uh, from Taiwan on Wednesday. They spend a little extra time in Asia. Oh, okay. Um, do you have fam? Do does your no? Do they you just had friends and Taiwan? stuff there, and like they had, yeah. They, so they just wanted to visit, and Taiwan's like a very easy place to have kids around and stuff because they got tons of areas and stuff for them. So she was with her sister. Oh, excellent! Yeah, yeah um, very chill. Very, very cool. Uh, I was back in Taiwan in in September. I was born in Taiwan, so it's it was oh, it's nice. nice. Yeah. 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 Everyone is a genetic version of their parents. They are the combination of that. And that's, yeah, it's interesting because like, oh yeah, people will tell me that Mason looks like me. I think he looks like my wife. Um, so I think it's going to be very hard. And maybe this is the whole parenting thing to ever divorce myself from the fact that I know that that person is part of me and they are like very deeply linked to everything that I am as well. Cause I, there'll be moments when he's doing something. And I'm like, I think I know what he's thinking. I think I know exactly what he's thinking and why he's thinking it. And I think I can only know that because he's genetically the same as me. I'm curious, Jimmy, like how much of your musings on technology, internet, AI, these things have like, how much of it is influenced by being a father, I guess, because I would imagine just obviously you think about it, but also the fact that you're also thinking about what the future means for the, the next generation, right? I mean, yeah. I mean how, how does that play into your, your thinking, if at all? I, I mean, I just had a kid a year ago and I've been online for like 20 years. So it's only really affecting <laughs> it a teeny a amount right now. I mean, it's yeah. a small part, but it's also the biggest part because it's the biggest life change I've had my whole life. Um, so I think like... I'm always trying to look at the macro scale of things. It's just like an addiction of mine to not think about microcosms of whatever, but to like do the whole zoom out experiment. There was this video. I remember pretty much everyone's seen it where you like start on a, a, a sand pebble on the beach or a grain of sand. And then you zoom out on, and you keep going past earth and you go through all the galaxies and the Milky way and all this other stuff. And the whole point is like, look how small we are. Um, so I'm always trying to do that and having a kid helps a lot. And anytime I talk online, I used to be very wrapped up in the moment by moment controversy day to day. What is the distraction and how are we reacting to it thing that social media exemplifies obviously. Um, and I think the further along the path of internet usage I've gone, the less interested I am in the minutia because I've started to see how inconsequential it actually is and how it, if anything, it blinds me to other important things I should be focusing on. And having a kid is probably the best example of like, avert your gaze. You have a child in front of you and they have a life that they're trying to live. How are you going to help them, you know, along this path? So that I think is the most direct link I think I can make between my view of things online versus how having a child has sort of impacted it. 
past that, it's just a matter of experience and years that has sort of formulated my opinion of it now. It sounds like you, you formed that opinion before becoming a father. So like, was there a particular wake up call or was there like certain moments that helped you develop that view that you have? Probably the pandemic would be the one that was the most obvious to me of like, wait a minute, if I'm just online the entire time, I really am no longer in control. I'm like seeding all my attention to an Instagram story or a Twitter thing or TikTok, which is like an endless road of infinity that you can never escape if you, mm -hmm. if you don't, if you're not careful. Um, and I saw it was also happening to a lot of other people. And I found myself pulled along all these different storylines on both sides of the political fence now, right? Like, yeah, maybe we should doubt this thing. Or like, maybe they are right. Like, maybe I'm wrong. You know, like all of these things start to really just yank my attention cord all the time. And I think like the pandemic, it exacerbated it to the point where it was like, I'm feeling anxiety, whereas I never used to feel anxious. And the more, and I'm looking at my screen time every day, it's like eight, nine hours on your phone. It's like, wow, that's crazy. Um, and I've always been addicted to technology. I've always had an addictive personality. I, you know, I used to play wow obsessively and all this stuff. And all of those things I have quit at some point. Like I sold my World of Warcraft account. You know, I got out of it entirely, even though I was heavy into it for years. Um, and so I think like the internet, I'm feeling the same kind of like, oh no, what has happened? What have we become feeling? And maybe the, the one I like spoke about the most was I remember when the Will Smith slap happened uh, and mm. Chris Tucker or Chris Rock, whatever, it got smacked across the face of the Oscars. And meanwhile, a war was erupting in Ukraine. Uh, and, and I remember being like, wow, look at that. We went from all of our attention being divided about this war in Ukraine, which is the most complex thing ever, but everyone's trying to dumb it down into like very easy, like that's not how war works. Anyone that studied war knows it's more complex than how it's being presented right now. And right. then you have this slap that takes everyone's attention immediately away from that and onto this hyper-focus for like two weeks. I was like, that's incredible. Yeah. It, even if it's just completely random happenstance, it's still incredible watching the ping-ponging of of just attention from one thing to the next. And I think I was like, I can't find any footing on this. I can't even, I, I'm, I'm like afraid to tweet now, whereas I used to just meme tweet and do dumb things all the time. Now I'm like mm. actively anxious and afraid to do something. And mm. it's not me, it might be the environment. And I think it's like one of those situations where once the environment becomes so hostile and so one thing or very like, you know, increasingly faceted things of that thing, people mm. definitely start losing their minds and not realizing they're in it as much too. It's like easy to be fully in something and not realize how volatile the environment is until you can actually extract yourself. And for me, I just deleted Twitter and Instagram from my phone and only use it when I'm at a computer and able to type in the thing. And as a result, my usage has gone down like probably like 10% of what it originally was. But I also feel much better and I'm able to focus more time on my kid, on myself, where I need to grow and all those sorts of things. So it, I think the pandemic really was when I was starting to lose my head a little bit. And then obviously I had my wife there to also be a gauge of reality for me and other, and my other friends. Um, and you know, I watched the magic community melt down like 70 times in the period of two years. And I'm like, this isn't, I just can't keep up with that mm -hmm. amount of energy about everything 
I'm going to lose my mind. And I was slowly. Mm -hmm. So I just started to very slowly back away. And now I feel like I'm at a much healthier place. But there are still times when I find myself in a Twitter rabbit hole and I'm just going deeper on something. And it's like almost like I'm like punching myself the whole time while I do it. Yeah, you said something that I really res that really resonates with me. It's like when you leave WoW in your case or EverQuest in Josh's case or oh, yeah. you, there are certain <laughs> things where you know, because you guys talked about that, you know, that was a big turning point where you, 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 you are addicted to these things and it wasn't super productive, but then like social media is kind of this thing where you can always rationalize it as being of value. You can always rationalize it as sure. being part of my job. It's part of like who I am as a personality or a creator or whatever. Like I need it, right? I needs it. So, um, <laughs> you can always justify spending more time. Um, uh, it's all, it's actually harder to just rationalize spending less time on it. So it, it, and no one, we were never taught this, right? Cause I'm, I'm sort of in the same age group as you. Like I remember the days of GeoCities and oh, yeah. you know, MySpace and you know, I, when I first had ICQ in high school, we didn't have this nice. shit. Like nobody, like James in the nineties never thought James in 2023 would be like, I'm going to wake up and check Twitter every day. And like, yeah. like our brains just wasn't they our brains just weren't configured for this. Like there's no, yeah. there's no, there's no, there's no regulatory thing, oh, yeah. right? No regulation like, about how many tweets you should be able to read every day. Absolutely not. Like we were never trained in school to like learn how to invest. And we were never trained in school, you know, how to, how to like be mentally aware or how yeah. to not like fall prey to these things. Like it's just so hard. Right. And especially when you can rationalize it. Yeah, that's a good point. I think the rationalizing it thing and people got angry at me when I was like lashing out against social media on social media. And they have a point, obviously, that like, didn't your mm -hmm. career succeed because of this? Are you not? Are you allowed to say these things now? And it's interesting because even allowing that argument to happen and me going like they have a point is one of the dangers of having the platform exist in the first place is because mm -hmm. you can rationalize things and and it's kind of a meme too. There's the whole like response of like, I ain't reading all that. I'm happy for you though. Or sorry that happened. Yeah. <laughs> it's like becoming a, a, like a, a, a mockery of itself in a lot of ways. I always describe social media as like a place where you can walk into a room and everyone's screaming at you. The wall is purple and you can look at the wall and it's not purple, but you, you have no choice, but to accept the reality that they are presenting and mm -hmm. you don't have control over that in the in immediate conversation. Um, or you so say it's another... green and you, there's retaliation. So you also have to, yeah. Or if you say that. it's green, all of a sudden you didn't realize it, but there's a whole army of green haters behind you that are so angry that you would ever say that that wall is green because of all the things it means and all the history it's attached to. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, we've like created a perfect little war ground for ourselves. And the goal is status and numbers and influence and however else you want to describe it. There's a great article uh, by someone named Eugene Way called Status as a Service. And it talks about how humans are status wired, and just like monkeys, right? We just, knowing someone is above you, knowing someone's below you is enough to create momentum and, and you know, drive or whatever else. And social media platforms create status as one of their primary services. You make a viral tweet, all of a sudden you have people that follow you that create a status around you and your humor your Instagram, your statuses, your hotness, your body, whatever it is, your travel ability, whatever you're flexing. And I think having status games is great, but 
Twitter, Instagram, and all the social media really represent like there's a, it's a box still mm-hmm. that you can only, achieve, I mean, sure you can infinitely get followers on Twitter or whatever, but it doesn't actually contribute meaningfully at the end of the day to anything. Um, I would even argue that like after seeing how Trump took the status of president as a tweeter and took that to its absolute limits, that it has actually shown, if anything, the worthlessness of a tweet that you can say anything. It's really on- devalued, right? And now with Elon and certain characters. Maybe yeah. not devalued, but rather shown its actual value. And that oh, all okay. the value it given Exposed. to it before is what we had propped up for it in the absence of never having something like this around before and just implicitly trusting that it was the go-to or it actually made a difference, right? Like we haven't done any studies to prove that really outside of like, sure, you can get a lot of people to retweet and agree with something, but does that create actionable change or is it awareness driven and it's actually creating these more worse and not, and like resentful parts of it to fuel that thing, that end goal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, um, you said it right. You're right on the money about like the disproportionate reaction to things, right? Like you, you mentioned Will Smith versus war. I had this thing, (laughs) literal war. (laughs) I had, I had this thing come up in humans and magic where, uh, I worked super hard on an episode last year and it was about, you know, covering the Ukrainian magic community as the war was happening. And I spent a ton of time on it and I was so proud of that work that I did. I interviewed like 10, 20 people on the ground in Ukraine who play magic, but it was really a larger narrative about like, what was it like Mm -hmm. to to live through that? Um, uh, And then I did an episode where um, I talked to the owner of SCG, who was just like anti-vax. And it was like, somehow like the thing that I worked so hard on got like one-tenth of the reaction uh, on the SCG episode. And sure, I guess, hashtag uh, clout. Like I got like <laughs> followers, listeners. That wasn't really why I did it, but it, I, was, it was, I was totally caught off guard. And, but I, I wanted people to listen to the Ukrainian episode, but it's like... That's not how it goes The internet online. does Sorry. what the internet does. <laughs> and and, and uh, I, I don't know if there's a, there was a lesson I learned, but it's, it's just like a reminder. Like, man, this yeah. is really messed up, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think my lesson whenever I see clickbait or whatever work is like it is appealing to a different emotion in humans that is very profitable if you're the gauging outrage emotion like is the most interaction. Profitable. Yeah, yeah, outrage, resentment, vengeance. This person deserves something. How dare they? Like all of these, even just feeling it as an actor and you're saying these things, you're like, oh, these got that they have this icky feel to them. It's more sharp it's like driving a point in it's not trying to spread love or add something it's trying to take away something out of anger or whatever it is so like that to me is like the flavor of the internet now and maybe that's maybe i'm just worried about flavors and vibes that's why japan's got its own flavor and vibe (laughs) for all of you listeners from minute one We don't need a matcha flavor. We need an outrage flavor or like... yeah, we need outrage flavor. Well, we've got plenty of that. Just look anywhere. I, I do mm. think resentment and envy are like those kinds of emotions though, that are a dark part of what hum- make up a lot of, you know, human action. And it's something that is given a open breeding ground to fester and grow in strength when you go online. Cause there is just, again, no regulatory anything.
no one is en masse going out and stopping resentment from driving the conversation. They're stopping bots. They're stopping scammers. Maybe they're stopping people impersonating other people or whatever, but you can't do that kind of thing without instantly getting into the, oh, this is why they banned Trump. This is why they banned this. Why are they allowing this speech to go? And then it quickly becomes a whole nother, right? It just gets distracted into an entire different argument instead of being like, I'm creating a social media platform and we just do not allow for any amount of resentment. If we, if our, if our bot detects resentment in your messaging, it will kindly ask you to modify the message or it will remove it. And that is on, you know, a, a social platform could a hundred percent do that, mm. but why do that when that is literally the biggest driver of all the interaction that happens on the website? Yeah. It's sort of against the, um, the commercial goals of the enterprise as it were. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. And unfortunately, you know, profit driven world scale, 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 who's the next Uber. <laughs> <laughs> That's what's always going to be top of mind for sort of like this, we call it, you know, it's the web two versus web three thing. That's what people are trying to hint at when they're figuring out this divide in what is the purpose of our data? And is it for other people to exploit and to market to, or is it something that we should actually own and have something, you know, to do something with? So what do you think is the, um, what, what do you think? I, I guess I, I don't want to ask you like what needs to happen, but what do you think? will happen like if if we're being realistic like what do you think happens like do these platforms implode do they start to fragment as you have said in the past uh you know through some observations like what what do you think is going to happen are we, we going to have this for the next 100 years and just just be worse or what is it have you ever seen or read um the oh gosh why am i blanking foundation a isaac asimov. asimov yeah 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 so the idea behind that is that the study, the scientist, Harry sell something, shoot, what is his name? I can't blank on this foundation, Harry Selden. He does something called psychohistory, which is like using mathematics and stuff to predict where things are going to happen. And this whole thing is like, we are about to enter a dark period of time, but instead of 20,000 years, we can make it 5,000 if we take the right preventative steps. Now I always kind of, ha I'm a doomer kind of guy. And so I always kind of see things happening around me as that it's like, we have a lot of problems in front of us and at the current pace we're going and how we're treating it, we are in for even worse things. It's going to compound and be worse and worse unless we can make some very smart strategic moves and figure out how to get ourselves, dig ourselves out of this hole. It may still be bad. Human nature is not something we can just avoid entirely. We are still a, a continent of or a, a, a world of many separate countries that all kind of hate each other. Um, so we're still in that period of humanity. I think there's like levels, there's like some classification in sci-fi to the levels of humanity and like level, whatever is the, the world is fully united and able to travel into the rest of the universe as a united front. Utopian. Yeah. Yeah. But even not, if it's utopian, it's like, it's like a avatar where just everyone in the world gets along. Mm. No one's going to go and try and murder another part of the world or, you know, like, so there is some amount of unity around the, the, the world. We're so far from that point. Every country is so completely different and they all have their own long, long histories that have not been able to meld into the you know overall consciousness or whatever yet. Um, so I think w that is how I see things. I don't know how bad things are going to get. I know that there's a lot we can do in the interim to fix for that and solve for that. But that doesn't mean it's going to stop being bad. Humans are, I just think, at a point still in our evolution where we're very far from the semblance of like a unified society.
and we're, we're maybe we're in our teenager years or something because that's what social media and drama and and even now how i see a lot of people treat each other in day-to-day life and the tv we watch feels still very high school and teens in our you know sort of like our our attitudes yeah we ain't monks that's for sure that is for that is for damn sure we got monks yeah but we ain't monks yeah yeah um Am I being too optimistic thinking that maybe one day people will just wake up and recognize that <laughs> we're enslaved to our phones and just like, just go back to the agrarian, like feature phone society. Is that, is that just wishful thinking? I, I guess it is. Right. <laughs> I think the, there's two ways it happens. One is you release a movie called the matrix. Oh wait, that didn't work. Mm. Bummer. Okay. That option's off the table. The other is uh, the sun and explodes a giant solar flare that EMPs the whole planet, and we have no choice but to go back mm-hmm. to to our roots. Yeah, I mean, you I, you must have like read or watched uh, Watchmen, right? Like the original. Oh yeah, I love novel. Watchmen. Like basically, it, there was a there's a storyline there which is uh, uh, spoiler alert for someone who hasn't uh, read the graphic novel, but um, <laughs> you know, like it took humanity like like this, like it took like New York being demolished or the alien invasion that was created for like humanity mm-hmm. to actually come together. So that's why Ozymandias yeah, yeah. did and that. And it was manufactured. And it was manufactured, yeah, right? Exactly. So it's like, yeah. it, there, there needs to be something probably on that scale of people to be like, yeah, maybe I should reevaluate like um, yeah. what's going on. So yeah, I, 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 I agree. I love Watchmen. The new series on HBO as well is fantastic. If you haven't seen that yet. Phenomenal. It's easily probably the best TV show I've seen. It, Probably in the last five to 10 years, uh, if I may use it yeah. verbally. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's up there. It's like breaking bad is up there for me. That's up there for me. Uh, last of us is currently on its road to being up there for me. Yeah. I'm going to plug Andor. So. have you seen that? Oh, incredible. It's what I wish star Wars was, uh, for so many, many years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, that's actually the one thing I love about the, this podcast is that, um, it was actually BDM, Brian David Marshall, who recommended Andor oh, to nice. me as we were recording. And then, cause I told him how burned out I was on, on star Wars. And he was just like, you have to watch this show. And then he basically sold me like on the, it, during the recording, like, this is why you need to watch it. And he's not wrong. Love it. Yeah. Yep. I'm all about Andor. Um, I think it's still, is it's not perfect. Still. There's still some moments where I'm like, eh, but I thought overall is like, this is the tone we're going for. I think it's like, who is it? Tony Gilroy that did it. Yes. Uh, that was, yeah. that's showrunner. Yes. Yeah. 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 Tony Gilroy just, he gets the pacing right yep. he can just he gets the feeling and the pacing to make star wars feel cool and not like episodes seven through nine yeah there's something great about having a, a self-contained story that is allowed to slow burn i think that's the way i would i would describe it yeah like it takes time and there is no <laughs> there is no world-ending threat too. Yes. That is a big helper. Yeah. Like not needing to jam in a world ending universe ending threat into every story allows you to tell more human stories. Who would have thunk it? What are some things that you watch or like consume that you're like, maybe you want to recommend, like, are there things that excite you right now in terms of just things in general? Like it could be a YouTube, it could be a Netflix show. It could be a movie. I think you've been pretty high. Game Nights, man. What a, what a great <laughs> show. Everyone should watch Game Nights. Revolutionary. K. Yes. Revolutionary. Broke the barriers of the industry. What is it like to be like the grandfather of this entire genre, like of commander gameplay and podcasting? Like just, just being the OG, like what, what, what has, what does it feel like to be that? 
Yeah, maybe we're at grandfather status. It's cool. I mean, I have to give so much credit to Josh, though, because I'm very good. I know my skill. I know my ability to, you know, charisma, fun, whatever you want to say, like easy to listen to and all that stuff. Josh and I have a very specific back and forth as well that we've honed over eight years. But I think the polish is what really created Game Nights into what it became. And without that polish, it would not have had as much of an impact. Because I think humans, when we see something that feels like it could be on TV or in a movie or whatever, like it has that level of, like, like talk to any Warhammer fan about the fan-made CGI films that this one guy's done. Is now being hired by um, the company to make it. Similar things. Um, because it felt so good and so real and so accurate to what was happening to the Warhammer world. I think Game Nights does a great job of that. And Josh being a trailer editor was very good at being able to hone in exactly on how to present something in that very easy to digest and entertaining way. Um, and learn how to turn the knobs up on certain things and turn the knobs down on other things, which is where I think a lot of the anger about game nights comes from, which is like, they took away this and that and this and that and replace it with this and that. I don't like this and that. And I think the this and that that they don't like is actually why the show is massively successful mm. and has brought in people like Post Malone and Joe Manganiello to want to be a part of it. It's because you don't get to that inbox without providing a certain le like level of quality that passes a bar. Now, if you go back on Posty's life, he has hung out in Minecraft houses and he's down to jam with just the gnarliest of gnarly, right? But I think the shine and sheen of Game Nights brought a new level of like, wow, Commander is epic in so many different ways outside of just the fun social environment. It's also the plays and all that stuff. And so I think Game Nights, if it does anything really well, is it helps turn up the knob on that epic feel and that like, holy moly, can't believe that just happened quality of, of multiplayer gameplay that everyone wants to have in their play group to some degree. How does it feel to actually shape the trajectory of Magic the Gathering? Uh, great. So great. I'm, I got zero stocks. I was hoping I would get a check in the mail from Wizards or Hasbro that was like, here's your stock certificate for creating Commander into what it is now. But it would also be very selfish of me to say that because it's not just me that's made Commander into what it is. Um, it's kind of funny thinking that like our criticisms or our critiques of like make white do this more or fix red have turned into what they've become because it's almost like the monkey's paw where the finger curls and all of a sudden treasures exist. <laughs> and it's like, wait a minute. Did we ask for this? Mm, kind of not really. Oh no. Um, so I, I try not to think that I actually have that much influence. I assume that the game designers are very ahead of us in terms of understanding why the game doesn't work and that they've already been on the path that we've shown a flashlight on maybe, but that path has been laid down. And I think, you know, I don't doubt Magic's got probably the best design team in the world um, when it comes to gaming. And they have a very, I've met all of them now, Gavin, Mark, all those people, Aaron, you know, I've, I've talked to them. I've like gotten inside their heads a little bit and they're great at what they do. And that's what makes the game somewhat entertaining. So my influence, I think, is more that I, we brought people to the fact that you can. this is the best board game in the world and probably drove a lot of profit for WotC in that period of time. But at the end of it, I'm just glad that more people are able to connect through Magic. And it also creates an outlet for a lot of people that would not have a larger social group to connect with because of Magic in its infant, like old players, right? That Magic was small, niche, and not something that people knew about. 
I think there's a good funnel that goes both ways and helping sort of like bridge that gap for people. Cause it's very, you know, I've met a lot of awkward magic players just to tell you the truth. And it's good to have outlets where we can practice how to be social and how to enjoy time with other people and create a positive play group or whatever it is. And that to me is like the real takeaway from the whole board game D and D critical role game nights revolution that's happened over the past eight years. I respect your answer a lot. Um, it's a very <laughs> humble answer. I, w I wanted you to be like a lot more like, yeah, man, I, I create a commander, you know, like, uh, resentment, here we go. Resentment, <laughs> outrage. Uh, I don't know all the different spectrum of complex emotions, but I felt all of them to be fair. I've, I've been, you know, there was one point, I don't know if you saw this in, uh, when we did magic con Vegas, and uh, we did the game nights live show. Something happened. I forget exactly what, but I stood up indignant from my chair because people were booing me over something. And I like, I screamed at them. Like I've made content for you for eight years straight <laughs> and asked for nothing. <laughs> Are you not entertained? This is yeah, not why was, we're here. But that's, but that's why I think worldwide wrestling <laughs> exists at WWE and all that stuff in AEWs because you're able to admit that persona in a safe way. Mm -hmm. If I'm just unhinged out here, like ranting about people, I don't think I could feel good about myself later on in life. I think there's also something unique in your situation in that you, you achieved a level of fame, like before game nights. And I think that probably allows oh, yeah. you to be a little bit more level headed. Detached. Right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You've seen a level of success or fame, whatever you want to call it before game nights. So I think it allows you to keep a little bit more of a, a level head because I've seen a lot of people maybe go viral or famous too fast. And they just, it's just, it just goes with the whole thing about like our lizard brain can't deal with that <laughs> shit. So it's just like, they just blow, they just, they just, just they just yeah. self combust. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 Um, I think Twitter does a very good job of reducing people to their animalistic nature. Look at like what has happened to Kanye, Elon, Tate, any of like, even the major politicians, right. Have all been humiliated by what pressure Twitter brings on them almost. And it's of their own doing a lot of times <clears throat> it's like pure hubris. Yeah. Um, like we saw it this year happen with like the try guys with Ned, like that was just a complete fall from grace from the pressures of whatever this industry is eliciting out of people. Um, but yeah, I have been around the block a couple of times. Uh, very few of us online now have been, um, and I think all those old recognizes old <laughs> online, which is like 10 years old at this point. But I always reference like Wong Fu Productions and Ryan Higa and Kev Jumba and that entire generation of YouTube creator, because that's sort of when I really started. And that was 12 years ago now. Um, and we all had our own levels of fame and relevance or whatever you want to call it. And even I, I, I'm, if anything, if you're going to catch like a weird side of me, it's my jaded side which doesn't believe people should become actors, which isn't that excited about Shang-Chi because what is Shang-Chi? It's just another Kung Fu master. You know, like that part mm -hmm. of me is very much still in that realm of entertainment is evil, <laughs> but I've been a willing participant and I've benefited from the construct many times over. Um, so that's, if anything, the thing I struggle with and the thing I think about all the time is like, am I actually happy doing what I'm doing? Or did I just follow this road and I'm at where I'm at, but it doesn't mean I have to stay here. In terms of happiness, are you happy with uh, command zone game nights? Like, do you feel like you guys are, are, are kind of, are kind of doing it? Cause like, I, I know that you, both you and Josh have been public saying, you know, like, you know, 
will need to evolve, right? Like, so yeah. I guess it's kind of a it's kind of like a two part question. Like, where do you think this sort of content is going, and how do you pl see yourself like playing a part in the in the future of it? Yeah, I think the constant evolution and getting better part is really important. That's a lesson I learned very much from Josh, having worked with him now for eight years or whatever. Um, and I think that is something that is something we're still growing, I think, as a channel in a lot of ways. And it would be an absolute mistake for us to get caught up in our current criticism because we're enveloped in criticism of Watsi at the same time, you know, because we work with them as a, one of our partners. And I think that is something that we're coming to sort of grow as a company and understand because when we first started, our jobs were not possible because Watsi uh, didn't sponsor us to the degree that it does now, right? Like in terms of giving us the budget to make game nights is really where it all started. And then from there, we we're like, hey, maybe we can do some ad spots, maybe we can do some other things. And the relationship grew, you know, we're still maturing as a company, I think. And the, one of the things a company that matures has to do is understand its relation to the companies it's working with. It was a very much a one directional thing at first. Watsi was like, cool, we love game nights. Here's a small budget to make it every year. And then we worked on that budget and it made it more workable and able to hire more people and work under the same house. And now it's getting to the point where I think we have to start thinking about ourselves as the source and people are lucky to work with us. And game companies should want to work with us or commercial companies or to make their commercials or ads or whatever. And that way, the relationship becomes more like we are now the dealer of the thing because we've been practicing it and making it for a long time. And we can grow larger as a company and do more cool, awesome things that are truer and truer and truer to what our heart's passions and desires are. But it has to start from sort of like growing past that um, one-way relationship originally. Because now maybe we're a company that sustains a Watsi-like relationship with multiple companies and for our own stuff as well. We're a real production house now. Like I think that's the, that's the level that we're trying to work on right now. And you know, I think Josh may have mentioned it, but we're moving into a new studio in Burbank, and we're trying to level up things in different ways. And also professionally, you know, like we got to treat things with, you know, we have to actually have our taxes sorted out, our adult <laughs> stuff, our administrative stuff. How do we work as a company? The racy matrices and all that stuff. Like those are all the questions that are starting to really formulate now as we grow beyond like a twenty-person company. Is it still fun for you? Oh, definitely. I think it's all of it's fun because it means I get to work with people I really like. How do you feel about commander content in general? Like we had talked about how you guys are the originators of it, but there's this whole market around it now, right? Everybody's playing webcam <laughs> EDH every other, every day or every minute, every hour. Like, yeah, the pandemic definitely helped people make content. I think that was a nice part about it is that made people do their spell table setups and stuff, which is pretty sweet. Do you, do you see that just continuing the way it is, or do you think magic content is going to evolve again into something different? Interesting. Magic's so based around the game that it's hard to think about it evolving. And I mean, look at like League of Legends, for example. It is probably the biggest game in the world by a lot of metrics, or at least one of top five, top 10 easily. Um, and if you look at the content scene around that, I was really heavily involved in it actually in its early days, I was a host for a show called all chat, which was like our community fan service show where we would show cosplayers and go to you know, events and go to meetups and film it and sort of like do a fun world around what is, you know, the community feeling and what are they passionate about? What are the things that we want to discuss as a, as a show? And that was like one facet of Riot's 
content at that time. And there was a decent scene around that as well about people, you know, making their own cosplay content or starting their own channels or whatever as a result. And you watch it all sort of flourish for a bit. And since then, it's died down a bit. And League content, I think, is more focused around the esports side of it as well as like the championships and the teams and the esports orgs that make it up. Um, and it was only until Arcane that it put like a big fist through the idea of what can content around this game mean. And Arcane is a game changer for a billion different reasons um, in the same way that Spider-Verse was. But I think that's, to me, like really indicative of what Magic has in front of it too. It's just like, there is a limit to the point where you can do things with the game that are interesting because you just don't see people playing League as content really unless they're streaming. And Magic is like, we've created this show, this way to digest it in a sit-down packaged format. Um, I don't actually know what's past that for Magic. It seems difficult for my brain to wrap itself around an idea that I myself would want to sit down and watch and be like, wow, this is great Magic content. Because everything else is kind of there. we got deck tutorials, reviews, discussions. You've got different flavors of Commander shows. You have so much content that's around the game that feels like that is its own engine. And I don't know what you can inject into it that makes everyone go, holy crap, we didn't know this existed and we need it. So maybe like I, I just can't think of it. Yeah, maybe short of the game itself actually evolving or something. Like it's very hard for us to go past it, right? Because like, yeah, there's like an esports angle you could take. Maybe the pro tour gets so big that something could go happen there. Magic had a show that they've been sort of delaying post arcane because it's a lot to live up to, and that could be something that opens the doors to more types of Magic content. You could also see cosplaying maybe take a a, a nationwide, worldwide rise in prominence, and Magic cosplayers in the same way that magic art is at the top of, of, of uh, fantasy is also magic cosplay is also now at the top of cosplay or whatever, but that's, you know, there's a lot to do there. Jimmy, what's the best place for people to, to find you on social or where, where you would like to be found? <laughs> Don't find me on social. <laughs> Don't find way. you. Yeah. Nah, you can follow me. It's a uh, J F W O N G on most things. Okay. So Twitter, Instagram, all that stuff. I'm not super active on Instagram anymore, but Twitter is just like me musing if I decide to muse and giveaways. If you like some giveaways, I'm doing some giveaways in March. I don't know when this is coming out. So, you know, I'm going to try to make sure it comes out fairly soon for your, your birthday. So there's a, That's right. there's a little fun fact, um, which is totally inconsequential to anything, but I found out through my research that your, we, our birthdays are just one day apart. I think really, your what's your birthday? It's March 27th. Wow. Look at you, Aries. Yes. Doing it. You are and also fun. an Aries if you're one day different from yes, what I it am. It is correct. Yes. It is correct. Yes. I am. Yeah. I am an Aries. Yeah, that's awesome. Happy birthday soon. That's great. I yes. Love happy birthday March soon birthdays. to you as well, Jimmy. Yeah. March is a great month. Uh, we're at the beginning of the year. We're not like somewhere in the summer. You can still celebrate it during the school year. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Jimmy, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. And uh, it was it was um, it was a pleasure. All right. Great to talk as well. Thanks, James, for having me on.